The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Tonight, the title of our Bible study is to tell the truth, and that we're going to be in Mark's Gospel, chapter 3. Actually, we're going to conclude chapter 3 this week, and then next week we'll have just, again, the night of worship. You know, to tell the truth, uh, a number of years ago, we had a young pastor on staff, um, big personality. If, I don't know if you, had, if you ever had opportunity to meet Ernesto Cobian, um, but he was, he was quite a character. I guess that's the best thing you could say. He was quite a character. And from time to time, when he came on staff, and he was walking by me, he would tell the folks that were around me, he says, that's my dad. That's my pops right there. Now, I'm not his father. And so... Uh, over a period of time, again, in, in all fun and, and kind of playing around a little bit, I would, you know, I would say, you know, he, he's, he's not my son. He certainly isn't my son. I'd be happy to pay for a DNA test to prove that he's not my son. Look at him. Look at me. There's no family resemblance. And, and we would have a good time until down at La Jolla Shores at one of our baptisms, I was speaking to three, uh, three of the ladies from church, and Ernesto walks by and goes, hey, that's my pop's. And, I, and I, I turned to the ladies and I go, he's not my son. And then one of the women got a very serious look on her face. Her countenance certainly changed. And she goes, you know, when you deny your son like that, it really hurts my heart. <laughs> and I was sitting there looking at her thinking she was joking. And she goes, you know, he, he, he acknowledges you in front of other people. And every time you say you're not related to him. And I'm looking at her and I go, that's because I'm not related to him. <laughs> and... Um, that's why it's important to tell the truth. And, and, and tonight we're going to deal a little bit, not, not the main part, but a, certainly an important part, about Jesus is dealing with his family. And I think, I think there's some things for us to learn tonight. And so uh, as, we, as we begin tonight, our takeaway is Jesus loved difficult people enough to tell them the truth. That Jesus cared enough about people, even those that appeared to be his enemies, to tell them the truth. And, and I wonder if you would, if you would process with me, this with me a little bit, that when you really care about something, certainly we tell them the truth in love, but, but we think enough about them to deal with them in a truthful way. I know I already got your minds thinking about that, but let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. So Father, as we gather here tonight, as in many of our hearts and in our minds, what transpired here just but a couple of nights ago, is not only was this the sanctuary, but also uh, out on Solomon's porch and online, Lord, there were so many people that celebrated, that experienced your joy as we remembered the Feast of Trumpets. From the sounding of the shofar to the wonderful worship, to the many people who were obviously on this platform, but many were behind the scenes in our media department and our, and our uh, security team. And all the hours and hours of preparation represent, Lord, a spiritual family coming together. Even those that come from different churches and, and, and different walks of life, Lord, we came together and for an evening we celebrated the fact that in the future there will be the sound of not an earthly shofar but a heavenly trumpet. And the scriptures tell us, Paul's careful to tell us, that the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive will be caught up to meet you, Jesus, in the air. 
And we live in anticipation of that time. As a matter of fact, Lord, we believe so strongly in that event, the rapture, that it affects the way we live our lives now. So be with us in our Bible study. Father God, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So Jesus loves difficult people enough to tell them the truth. You know, from time to time, my daughters would come in and and, and we would need to deal with something that was serious, something that was related to, to them and you know, maybe to something that went on in our immediate family or in their school. And, 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 and there was, I think because of our relationship, because of our love, there was the freedom to express ourselves one to another, even though that, you know, I'm the parent and they're the child. And I think one of the things that I greatly appreciate about our relationship even today, even though they're well into their 40s, well, not well into their 40s, but they certainly have stepped over the, the threshold into their 40s, is that we can have those honest conversations. That wasn't the case in my family. In my family, as a matter of fact, uh, when, when I was young, perhaps the culture, perhaps just a different generation, there were certainly things we did not talk about. We did not go there. Not that we were afraid, but we just understood that you didn't talk about that individual or about that relationship. But Jesus loved difficult people enough to tell them the truth. You see, tonight Mark is going to share with us two examples of opposition that Jesus experienced. And hear me clearly, he experienced opposition with all the good that he was doing, with all the ministry that he was doing. Last week we said tens and thousands of people traveled from not only the region but from outside of the country to come and be with Jesus. And yet he did, the Gospels tell us, experience or encounter opposition. Tonight, first from his family. Actually, tonight's lesson is a bit of a sandwich. We have his family on the front end and then on the back end. So first from his family and then from the religious leaders. See, see the rejection or the hostility that he experiences from his family is coming from those, listen, closest to him. Sometimes when we encounter opposition from other people, we understand if it comes from people who are outside the family, but when it comes from within... When that wound, when that thing said comes from within the family, it hurts even more. Mark then revisits the hostility that he, Jesus experiences from the scribes. It's a group of people that you will remember who were experts or lawyers in the law. As a matter of fact, most people would go to a scribe when they needed uh, explanation or interpretation of the law as how it might apply to their a specific situation. Back to the family, we know that eventually they would come around. In Acts chapter 15, we find James, probably more accurately Jesus' half-brother, having Mary as a mom, but obviously Jesus is, was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But we, have, we see that James is now the leader of the church at Jerusalem, at the Council of Jerusalem. And then if you look through your New Testament, there's a very small book entitled Jude, which is Jesus' other probably more literally, his half-brother. The religious leaders are a very different story than Jesus' family. Pride, not familiarity, blinds them to Jesus' identity. They can't see who he is because of their pride. They have a, a blind spot. And I know sometimes uh, earlier on I, I used to drive a truck all different kinds of trucks. And uh, some of them had the big, the big 
the big the flat-nosed cabs to them. It's like you're driving, there's the windshield, and then it, you know, the road's right in front of you. All Others of them have a, a, a longer you know, front section. And, and, and if you drive a truck, especially with, you know, on, on the freeway system, it's better to have more mirrors, larger, larger mirrors and smaller mirrors, but it's good to have mirrors so that you do not have blind spots when you're making a turn or backing up. As a matter of fact, I, I worked briefly, briefly for FedEx in between churches and in between working at different churches. And uh, one, you just, we learned a lot of tips. And one of them is when you park your vehicle, your van, you always need to park to where you never have to back up, if at all possible. Uh, because the statistics on accidents are, is, does happen when you back up. I also delivered mail. That's a whole different story. I did hit a couple of things when I was delivering mail. Um, but we won't talk about that right now. But nevertheless, the religious community, the religious community as a whole had a blind spot when it came to Jesus. And there are religious communities today, there are churches today that have blind spots when it comes to Jesus. And there are individuals who have blind spots when it comes to Jesus. And so, again, their issue wasn't familiarity or being close to Jesus. It was having a concept in their mind as to who he was or how, who Messiah was supposed to be. Opposition from both groups comes in the form of an accusation. I don't know if you've ever had somebody make an accusation about you, especially if it's not true, and you can at times feel defenseless. Everything within you wants to speak up. I, I think especially if you're in court and, and, and you, you're, you're in any kind of a trial and you hear people get up and say things about you and you know that it isn't true and you want to stand up. Everything within inside of you wants to stand up and say, that isn't true, that's not what happened. And so we have two accusations that we'll deal with tonight. First, from his family, Jesus' family, in verse 21, it says that he is out of his mind. And then in verse 22, the scribes say he is possessed by Beelzebul. Beelzebul is a term, it was a title from the first century that the Jews used, but it's equivalent to saying that he is possessed, listen, by the devil, that Jesus was possessed by the devil. And so you have his family saying that he's out of his mind, and you have the religious system to who everybody looked up to saying that he was possessed by the devil. The more serious of the two is an explanation as to how Jesus healed a man by delivering him from an evil spirit. Now, I'll read this passage to you, but it seems as though this man who had the inability to speak was afflicted by a demon. And so when Jesus comes to him and delivers him from the demon, then he is freed up to be able to speak. And I believe to see. We'll clarify that in a minute. On the other hand, the family's response causes me to wonder. And this is purely Danny in studying the text. But it causes me to wonder where Mary's voice was when the family would determine that he was out of his mind. Why was Mary's voice silent? Did she not share with her family the miraculous conception of her oldest son? 
Or did she not ever sit down with her family and explain to them that there was a night when she was an adolescent that into her home came the angel Gabriel, speaking wondrous things to her? How at Christ's birth, in response to the witness of the shepherds, remember the shepherds came to the stable and they found Jesus and they worshipped him and they told his mother and his father all that the angel had said to them regarding the birth of Jesus. In Luke chapter 2, verse 19, listen to these words. It says, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them, in her heart. That is, she took the message of the shepherds, she took that message and she took it and she treasured it in her heart. She hid it in her heart. And then, as a young person, she thought them through. She wrestled with what they might mean. And then when Jesus was 12 years old, you remember the story, the family had come to Jerusalem from Nazareth. They had celebrated there. And then they have some form of a caravan, you know, all these families that were heading back north. And, and after a couple of days, they're, they're looking around and they're going, well, and then Jesus was 12, right? He, he had already come to the place of being a son of the law. And, and they're looking around for him. And sure enough, they have to let the caravan go, go on, move onward. And they return to Jerusalem quite concerned. I remember when my daughter, Darcy, she was the youngest one. And we would go shopping. I don't shop, but I would accompany my family when they went to the store to go shopping. And, you know, I had my eyes on the kids, and, you know, Wanda's doing what she needs to do, and I turn around, and Darcy's gone, and, and she was, you know, she's, she's not, she was the smallest. She was the youngest. And, and what she would do from time to time is, you know, they have the clothes on the rack that go in a circle, is that she would climb in between the clothes and pretty soon she learned that I would look down and see these two little brown legs, you know, that were dangling down there before. And then she started to stand on the rail so that when I looked down there, I didn't see. And then Ramos would freak out, that's to, to, to say it nicely. And I would be, you know, like going crazy until I found her. And then I would speak to her in tongues for a couple of minutes and, and, and discipline. And so the family finds Jesus in the temple. And listen to, listen to what happens. Mary and Joseph correct him and then return home with him. And listen again, also Luke chapter 2, this time verse 51. And it says, He, Jesus, went down with them, that's mom and dad, and came to Nazareth, traveled to Nazareth. And listen to these interesting words. And it says, And he was submissive to them. Jesus remained submissive to them. And his mother, Mary, same terminology from verse 19, and his mother treasured up these things in her heart. I don't know about you, but from time to time, I have trouble submitting to authority. I believe Jesus' example here is noteworthy. The God of the universe caused himself to obey and to be submissive to his parents, but more importantly, Mary wouldn't let any of these events or any of these words from these special messengers escape her heart. So then when his family deals with him, obviously Joseph is gone. There's a number of children, so he must have lived some time, but by this time he's gone. Her sons take control of the family. I wonder where was her 
witness? Where was her story? Regardless of the disconnect between Jesus and his family, ultimately God revealed who Jesus was. If you look at the screen, there's a quote from John Piper. Being willing to come to Jesus was not something God saw in you, but something God worked in you. And would you remember with me tonight that God is continuing to work in your heart and my heart, that, that the, the project isn't over yet, that the process continues. So back to the scribes before we begin our Bible study. I want you to see their contempt for Jesus as being so calloused, as being so callous, so hard-hearted, that he says of their sin that it's unforgivable. This is supposed to catch our attention. This is supposed to, sometimes the scriptures, the way they're written, intends to cause the reader to have an inward tension to, like Mary, to wrestle with the truth, with the idea. Jesus says of the scribes, and we'll see this here tonight, that their heart had become so hard in their rejection of him that their sin was unforgivable. I think today this plays out in our, in, when somebody dies having rejected the conviction of the Holy Spirit that it's possible to happen today, but perhaps in a little different way. That over the course of an individual's life, the Spirit convicts the world, Jesus would say of the Spirit, that he comes into the world to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And yet an individual, upon each time the Spirit draws him to Jesus, resists, 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 resists. And then they find themselves in eternity. And this, my friends, would be the sin that is unforgivable. So from this point forward in Jesus' ministry, he prioritizes being alone with the disciples more than ever before. Time spent with the crowds is going to begin to subside slowly. He returns to Capernaum for some home cooking, something that eludes him. So Jesus has been traveling for months. He's been all the way through the, the region of Galilee, and he returns home. You look to the screen, we'll see this is, continues to be the Galilean ministry, family concern, verses 20 and 21. Read with me if you will. Then he went home. Jesus went home. And the crowd gathered again. This is something that happens on a regular basis so that they, that is Jesus and the disciples, could not even eat. This is a problem. This would be an extremely large problem for me. I don't know about you. Of all the things I, I, I forget, I never forget to eat. It says in verse 21, And when his family heard of it, now his family is not here at the time, but when they heard, when word had gotten to them, they went out to seize him. The word seize, every other time this Greek word is used in the New Testament, it speaks of somebody being arrested. So they go to take him by force, for they were saying he is out of his mind. And as we said in the introduction, this was their accusation, this was their charge against Mary's son and against their oldest brother. Verse 20, when it says that he went home, Jesus is back in Capernaum. However, he's home. But the need of the crowd is front and center. Think inescapable. He goes to be home there by the Sea of 
Sea of Galilee, and the crowds pursue him. They are unrelenting. They follow him wherever he goes. Because of the volume of the people and the volume of the need, Jesus is unable to even eat. Verse 21, family means mom and siblings. Some translations, some of your Bibles may say his own people. This would be an idiom for his kinspeople, his closest immediate family. Now, I believe there's a genuine concern here for Jesus' safety that causes them to travel from Nazareth not too far down to Capernaum. So Nazareth certainly is elevated, and so they would travel a, a known road down to Capernaum. Remember, their intent for leaving home, for stopping their lives, is to rescue Jesus from the crowds. And maybe some would say he's even, they're even rescuing Jesus from Jesus. They plan to take him home. We're told why when Mark says, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Now, I, I want to be gentle here. I want to be sensitive as to what was in their minds. They believe that Jesus is not thinking rightly. As a matter of fact, in the original language, it says that, it says that he is beside himself. And the reason I'm gentle is because I have family members who literally have issues with thinking clearly. And it's not always their fault. Something has happened to them. Maybe their bodies aren't functioning right. They're not working right. And so they don't think clearly. So Jesus' family, I want you to see that even though this may seem harsh on some levels, there's a genuine loving concern here. But if you look at the screen, John 7, 5 says, for not even his brothers believed in him. I would imagine here at Maranatha Chapel and those of you joining us online that when we think about our faith, we think about family members that we feel quite comfortable sharing maybe a, a spiritual experience that we've had. We feel very comfortable talking with them about things of faith and things of church and, and things of Christ. As a matter of fact, we might look forward to being with them and, and having that shared experience. But on the other hand, there are other family members that when we're around them and it comes to things of the Scripture and comes to things of our faith, we are careful. We measure our terminology. We're careful to keep the peace. I, I, I would guess I'm the only person in here tonight that has that situation with family. I want you to see that Jesus understands how you feel, understands the dynamics of your family, understands that there is a longing in you, that there is a longing in you to be able to have that koinonia with a family member, somebody under your roof, your, the roof of your home. And you feel like you're missing out on something because you cannot bring up Christ. You cannot ask, hey, can we pray about this? You cannot speak of what's really on your mind. You are a bit guarded trying to keep the boat from rocking. Jesus, Jesus experienced unique family dynamics. Now, I'm going to press pause here, and I say this on a regular basis because... 
If you were to see me at home, you would think that I had a remote control attached to my hand. Matter of fact, I can do it left-handed or right-handed. I'm a left-handed individual, but I am ambidextrous, baby, when it comes to a remote. So on this passage of the scripture, I want to press pause. My, my wife sometimes tells me, how can you flip through the channel so quickly? And I go, you know, dear, I'm focused. I, I am in the groove. She goes, but you only see something for a moment. I go, it takes me but a moment to realize I don't really want to watch that on YouTube right now. I'll save it for later. So we're going to press pause here. We'll come back to Jesus' family in a bit. Next is the charge of the scribes. And I said in the, in the introduction, this is much more serious. This is much more serious than the rejection that Jesus experienced temporarily from his family. To get a sense of where they were coming from, that is the religious leaders, I want you to listen to some of the things they had and will say about Jesus. I want you to get a sense of the temperature in the room when Jesus and the religious leaders were together. They came to find fault with him. They came to hear something at which they might point an accusation of him breaking the law. In John chapter 10, verse 20, John tells us that many of them, that is the religious leaders, said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? In John chapter 8, verse 48, then the Jews answered him. They're engaging in discussion here. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan, which was an insult? You are a Samaritan. You are, you are of the Samaritans. You're not pure-blood Jew like the rest of us. And again, have a demon. There's a bit of a theme here, isn't there? In John chapter 8, Verse 41, the last part of the verse, said, They, again the same Jews, said to him, We are not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. Now some scholars believe that the reference here to, to immorality is that they did the math on Jesus' birth and Joseph and Mary's marriage. And they're, they're bringing up the fact that they believe Jesus Parents participated in sexual immorality. We know that's not the case. Luke chapter 7, verse 34, Jesus is repeating what the religious leaders had said about him in contrast to John the Baptist. And he says, the Son of Man, that is one of the more common titles Jesus associates with himself. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That is, he associates with the wrong people. He not only overeats, he overdrinks. And then lastly, in John 7, 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you, and in reality, they were. Again, on the screen, you'll see the sin against the Spirit in verses 22 through 30. And the scribes came down from Jerusalem. You'll know, those of you that are Bible students, that Jerusalem is always situated, is always elevated. You're either going up or coming down. So the scribes come down from Jerusalem and were saying he is possessed by Beelzebub. And by the prince or the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. 
It's important for you to know that as the scribes arrive in Capernaum, they're a long way from home. They are considering the crowds that are following Jesus. They're hearing the stories. People are reporting to them. Jesus healed this man. Jesus delivered this individual. Jesus Jesus worked this miracle. And so then, they're not home. They're not in Jerusalem. They're not amongst their, their group. And so they find themselves on the defensive. And when they find themselves on the defensive, they find themselves slandering Jesus. There's a dark, even demonic inspiration in their charge. Let me read to you from James chapter 3, verse 14. It says, and remember, this is so interesting and intriguing to me that that James is talking to believers when he says, but if you have have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast, do not brag, and be false to the truth or contrary to the truth. Listen to verse 15. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. The way you're acting is not the wisdom or the way from above. Listen, it is the way of man. It is the wisdom of man. It is the way man lives when he lives outside of God's wisdom because the balance of the verse here is actually sobering. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. It is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And James says, seek the wisdom that comes down from above. I I find a great source of wisdom within the pages of Scripture, to be sure. But I also find a great source of wisdom from saints, from Christians, who are older than I am, who have lived life from this standpoint, that they have experienced difficulties in this life, and through those difficulties, through those hardships, through those afflictions, we might even call them, they have learned to trust God in a way I have not yet. And so then, when they share with me, I listen because they have godly wisdom. If you're sitting in this room tonight, if you're watching online, Ask yourself, am I living my life by godly wisdom or am I allowing the media to shape what I believe? Am I living by the pages of Scripture? Am I surrounding myself? And I know it's difficult sometimes to surround yourself with these older seasoned saints. But do I at least have one or two that I know who will pray for me, who will, who will counsel me with heavenly wisdom? So we, we see here that the accusation is, at least from the, from the scribes, is that Jesus is possessed or controlled by the devil. Mark provides some background. Again, this is a parallel passage from, uh, from Matthew. I'm sorry, Matthew uh, tells us in Matthew 12, in verse 22, it says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, he, he could not see, nor could he speak, was brought to him. That is, friends likely brought him to Jesus. And Jesus, he healed him. So the man spoke and saw. And the people were amazed. We see this response on a regular basis, don't we? They were amazed. And they said, can this be the son of David? This is a messianic title. Can this be Messiah is what they were asking. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, 
It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So Jesus hears what the religious leaders are saying. And he doesn't, at this point, get angry with them. But what does he do? He invites them to come and be with him. I believe that this is a representation of love. He doesn't write them off. He doesn't say, well, they believe differently than we, than we do, so we're not going to associate with them. He doesn't, he doesn't surround himself in some kind of an echo chamber where he only hears the things that he wants to hear. He loves them enough to tell them the truth. He loves you enough to tell you the truth, not to hurt you, but to heal you. In verse 23, it says that he called or summons them to him. See mercy as Jesus invites, listen, interaction. He warns men who have likely memorized the first five books of the Old Testament to be very careful regarding their charge. Again, verse 23. And he called or he summons them to him and said to them in parables. Now, these really aren't in the truest sense parables. These are what we would call axioms, truisms, statements of truth. And, but he begins, with the, he begins with this question in verse 23. How can Satan, how can the devil cast out Satan? The first one is in verse 24. If a kingdom divided against itself, that kingdom will fall. Verse 25. If a house or a home is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Then lastly in verse 26. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to its end. In other words, he's saying Satan's kingdom will not survive if Satan's kingdom, if Satan's power, casts out demons. Again, I believe everything that Jesus is saying is true, and he's saying it to individuals who he desires to receive the truth. The Lord challenges their explanation with a question, which, which is the way that many of the rabbis would teach in that time. How can Satan cast out Satan? Notice the transition as the religious leaders or the scribes were using the title Beelzebub. Jesus goes immediately to the devil or to Satan. The question reveals the absurdity of their position. When you read the words cast out here, it infers a violent removal, again, warfare. So the three statements, these truisms that Jesus is reasoning with the scribes about, he says, a kingdom divided against itself. Think, think of a civil war. Our nation experienced a civil war. We remember it. Brother against brother. Father against son. The north and the south. It's unnatural. It's wrong. And when a nation, when a country experiences civil war, when it experiences division so strong that there's hatred against, against individuals who are of the same, who are of the very same family as we saw in the civil war, it opens the door to that country's destruction or weakening. And he talks about a house divided against itself. Think of a family that's splintered. Think of a marriage that's broken. There's a sense that something's wrong here. When a family gathers together and there's hostility, when a family gathers together and there's silence, when a family gathers together 
and there's not that warmth and that tenderness. I'm not saying that families are perfect. Everyone in this room would understand that's not true. But when families work through the process of reconciliation, you have something. You have something of great value. He says, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And then lastly, Jesus is ca- uh, Jesus, if Jesus is casting out demons by Satan's power, then verse 26, he says, Satan or the devil has risen up against himself and is divided. All three scenarios refute the assertion of the scribes regarding Jesus' power. Verse 27 really is a profound statement that Jesus uses in his, in his dealing with the scribes. He says, but no one can enter a strong man's house. No one can enter in or go into the home of a strong man and plunder or take his goods unless he first binds the strong man. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing. He was using God's power to bind the strong man. Jesus has bound the strong man today. He has limited Satan's strength and ability and what he can do. Then indeed, continuing on in verse 27, he may plunder or take his house. In this, in this verse, the strong man's house represents the world. L- look at the world around us. Look at individuals who, who are in the kingdom of light and, and also see individuals that are in the kingdom of darkness and see the kingdom of light overcoming darkness. His goods, that which is plundered, are the souls of men and women. And the strong man himself is the devil. The one who the religious leader said it was by his power that Jesus was delivering people from the dominion of darkness, from the power of demons. Jesus tells them the result is that he, he may, that is the one who binds a strong man may plunder his house. A couple more things, and then we'll finish up with Jesus' family. From our perspective tonight, now remember where Jesus was talking, when Jesus was engaging, when Jesus was being merciful to these religious leaders, to these scribes. From our perspective today, Satan was conquered at the cross. During Jesus' ministry, he set people free by his divine power. I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. The Pharisees attributing Jesus' power to Satan results in a warning, verse 28. Now, now this warning is also found in Mark, Matthew, I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse 31, and Luke chapter 12, verse 10. And Jesus says to them, and I, 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 again, Jesus' kindness here, that he would tell the truth to these individuals when he says, truly, or pay attention, listen. I say to you, all sins will be forgiven of the children of man. And whatever blasphemies or evils that they speak of God, they utter, will be forgiven. That's the idea. Verse 29, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Why? Verse 30, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. I'm going to camp out here for just a minute, and then we'll wrap up. As you sit here tonight, I want you to know that every single sin can be forgiven. That there is no limitation to the work of the cross. There is no limitation from God's side of things. 
that if you cry out to God tonight and ask him to forgive you, it is done. It is complete. The finality of the cross is inside here. All sins are forgiven. That's a good place to begin. This isn't a license for us to sin, but in our weakness when we sin, the reality is Jesus' sacrifice is more than enough. The accusation of the scribes, accusation of the scribes revealed their hardness of heart. Keep that in the back of your mind, the hardness of heart. The conviction of the Holy Spirit, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, no, no, no. Jesus' miracles, no. Jesus' teaching, no. Jesus, they see Jesus delivering people from the power of Satan, and they say no. And each time they say no, their heart becomes harder and harder and harder. And everything that Jesus is saying here is saying, watch out, watch out. I care for you. I love you. Be careful. Watch out. In his humanity, Jesus was submissive to the Father. He's God. But he chose to be submissive to the Father and empowered by the Spirit. From his baptism on, he chose to operate by the Spirit's power. Remember these times that he gets away and he prays and he seeks the Father and he, picks, he selects the 12 apostles. He gets away and he prays and Peter comes and says, you need to get back to Capernaum. The people are gathering. He says, no, I am determined to go to all of Galilee, to preach the gospel in all of Galilee. And so we have, this, we have these insights into how Jesus operated. He would pray and obey, pray and obey. No matter what the consensus was, no matter where the crowd was, no matter where things were, quote, unquote, happening, he followed, he chose in his humanity to follow the, and to be empowered by the Spirit. But Danny, he's God. Yes, he's God. But he's providing an example to you and to me how to live the Christian life. So then delivering people from evil was a work of the Spirit. It was the Spirit's power that the religious leaders claimed to be Satan's power. And one more thing before we move on, and I want to actually say this slowly. If somebody comes to my office and they say, Danny, I have, you fill in the blank. I have done this. I have said this. Uh, Danny, I wasn't tempted. I gave myself to this particular action or I said this particular form of uh, profanity or I used the Lord's name in vain. Have I committed the unpardonable sin? And I say, absolutely not. You have not, I'm not in any ways endorsing those things, but in a moment of weakness, you sinned. Well, Danny, how can you tell me? I feel so bad and I'm so afraid. The reason I can tell you is that you would even have the tenderness of heart to come, that you would even be, to come and to see, that you would have the tenderness of heart to be concerned. Because an individual that commits the sin that Jesus is talking about doesn't really care. They don't really care. The person represented in Jesus' warning never receives forgiveness because he doesn't want to be forgiven. It's important to know God's character. His character is seen in the fact that he sent his son to die on the cross for all sinners. So now we're going to press play again on the uh, remote. And we see on the screen, family redefined, verses 31 through 35. And his mothers and his brothers, now they arrive in Capernaum, and they were standing outside, likely the house where Jesus was staying, and obviously there's many people there, and they sent to him. They couldn't get to him themselves, so they kind of say, hey, can you let him know we're out here? And they called to him in verse 32. 
And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about, that is studying each and every individual in the room, he's looking at each and every face when he says the following words. Here are my mother and my brothers, exclamation mark. It's a declaration. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. I hope you have a good family. Loving dad, loving mom, siblings. I hope that when you gather, there's a lot of laughter and a lot of love. But for some people who find themselves alone in this world, abandoned, these relationships that are familial, that are close, are something that are dreamed of, I want you to hear these words again. Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother for you here tonight. Find yourself alone because you follow Christ. Jesus speaks from heaven to you. My dad, my mom, my brother, my sister, you are mine. You're not alone. For those who claim that Jesus had no brothers, and some denominations do, Mark uses the word that denotes children here from the same parents. Jesus' response would have been surprising, for you see, in the Hebrew culture, family was almost sacred. He's not being disrespectful. As a matter of fact, in John 16, 26, we see Jesus pass on care of Mary, his mom, to, to, the, to the apostle John. Jesus is introducing the idea of a spiritual relationships that you and I may experience on a level that's as deep as any relationship found in any family. He's telling you tonight that within the church, that within our gathering, there are people that you can have relationship with on the same level as you might have with a family member. I'm just going to just, just think about that. Why? Not because you look the same, not because you believe the same, on so many of things, but because you, listen, you are the same. Paul references the body of Christ as being many members but one body, many members with one head. And I think if there's a, listen, I think if there's an ache in the hearts of so many people that come into this building and buildings like this building, it's that sense of longing to be connected with brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. That is his will. That is his will. Family is a good thing. For others, family relationships are a little complicated. That's fine. It is no different in church. Our church family is made up of imperfect people but with the very same need to belong. It is the Spirit of God who causes us to work through the tough stuff 
that come with relationships. My friends, tonight as we leave here, God is inviting you to become part, a part of a spiritual family. Maybe a growth group, maybe another believer at your work, maybe a neighbor. Based on this passage tonight, I would encourage you to become vulnerable, to venture out, to realize that you're going to be let down, but the richness of the church, the richness of, of the family is found in, in Christ Jesus. On the screen one more time. Well, actually two more times, but the first of the last two. 1 Peter 3.8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. By way of application this week, again on the screen, I want you to think that the church, that in the church you can find, I want you to hope that within the church, within your, within your family, with other believers, that you can find friendship. You can find a friendship that's rooted in the Spirit. That even though we're different, the thing that we have in common is our love for Christ. Secondly, support. I want you to think that as you leave here tonight, that there is support found in the church. And it's found from others who have gone through similar life, life situations that you're going through now, but they've made it through. And they're here to give you support, to give you strength, and to tell you how they made it through. And then lastly, love. There is a unique love that comes by the Spirit. There's a unique love that comes from the forgiveness of sins. Let's go ahead and pray. So, Father, tonight, tonight as we look around the room, as we consider, as our thoughts, we go back and forth, we ask you to work in those relationships in our family that are strained. Something's been said, something's been done. And Lord, would you show us how to reconcile? Would you give us the courage and the strength to approach that brother, approach that sister, to approach that mom, that dad, if at all possible, Lord, to experience the miracle of reconciliation through the power of the Spirit? And Lord, there may even be some that are here tonight that have left another church or, or have been a part of a group and something happened, something was said in there as well. Lord, might you encourage us tonight to forgive to ask for forgiveness and to pursue reconciliation. That is what you came to do. And Lord, for those of us that are a little older, that have been around the block, that have nicks, that have bruises, might we realize that many of us have experienced those difficult times and seasons so that we might turn around and help somebody else who's going through that very same or similar difficulty. And in all of this, we're a family. In all this, we tell the truth. In all this, Jesus, we're more like you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.